Today I'm going to talk about how do we interact with the Holy Spirit in today's modern church society. How do we do it in the West? How do we do it in church? What permissions do we have? What limitations do we have? And um, I'm going to have some interesting time with you on this. So before we get started, I'm going to give you a quick glossary of terms. Can I give you two theological words? Yes, you can, Cam. Now, let's do this. So, <laughs> they're really simple ones. These are the simplest theological terms you'll ever have. Cessationism. Coming from the word cease. All right? Does that make sense? Good. Cessationism. This is a theological belief that certain elements of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament are not present or are not required in today's church. In other words, some of the things in the book of Acts, some of the things in the New Testament ceased today. Are you with me so far? Good. I'm going to use that word a bit, cessationism or a cessationist who believes that. The other one is relatively simple too, probably easier. Continualism. All right? <laughs> this is a line of thought that believes those elements are very much present and required. And uh, so they're the two lines of thought that I want to sort of speak into and address and interact with today. And the beauty about Baptist churches is that for some reason we are more often than not the happy medium between the two extremes. And uh, we often, you know, we come from you know, heavily Pentecostal backgrounds and have gone, you know, maybe that's a little bit too extreme. I know, I'll go to a Baptist church. Or maybe we've gone from a really, really, really traditional sort of thing which is kind of really conservative in its theology and says, you know, the Spirit, it doesn't feel like there's enough Spirit here. I know, I'll go to the Baptist church. So it's kind of like we find this happy medium here. And uh, we come from all walks of life and, and as a result it can be a bit jarring or shocking uh, as we try to navigate our way through how the Holy Spirit should or could work in our life. So hopefully we can uh, walk away with a bit more confidence today in where that's at. It's important to note this. There is so much common ground, it's not funny. All right, so I want to address the common ground because the doctrine of the Holy Spirit has a lot more in common than what we don't have in common. All right. Both sides of this theological discussion firmly believe in the person and even the present-day activity of the Holy Spirit. A cessationist doesn't say the Holy Spirit is not at work today. They just have different ways of how that is expressed. Both sides of the discussion, from everything I have researched, can find salvation aside from this discussion. How deep or how not we interact with the Holy Spirit, particularly in the area of charismatic gifts, is pretty much not a heaven or hell issue particularly when they do understand that there is some interaction with the Holy Spirit anyway from both sides of the, of the uh, debate. Both agree from Scripture that the Holy Spirit plays a pivotal role in our salvation. Both sides of the discussion agree that the Holy Spirit is to be understood as a person as opposed to some other energy or force. This was actually discussed and challenged in the early days of the church. One minister in the late 3rd century named Arius 
described him as a created being and merely the exerted energy of God. He was also known as someone who who denied the deity of Jesus Christ as well. And uh, those mindsets didn't go down too well with the rest of the church. That goes down in history as ancient heresy today. And the only church to really, really grasp it, well, the Mormonism has a bit of an element of it, but also the Jehovah's Witnesses are fully ensconced in this mindset. Arianism is a good way to describe their doctrinal beliefs. As a person, the Holy Spirit can be grieved. That's a person trait, isn't it? All right, Ephesians 4.30 is an example of this. Ananias and Sapphira learn the hard way that he can be lied to and he doesn't take too kindly to that. We know that the Holy Spirit can speak and he can lead. Luke credits all three members of the Trinity as speaking to Paul as they're navigating where to go in Acts chapter 16. And the Holy Spirit is mentioned first in that. Also in Acts 8, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. It is the Holy Spirit specifically credited as the one telling uh, telling Philip to run alongside the chariot. And he can teach. Jesus, throughout John's Gospel, said that that would be a major role of the Spirit in the life of a disciple. We have a person that we are interacting with here. Both sides of, the grant of us also agree that he is a divine person. He can be prayed to and engaged with as God. There's a reason we are baptised in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. We know that Jesus claimed the Spirit could be blasphemed. That's a sin from which there would be no coming back. In Mark chapter 3, Matthew chapter 12, blasphemy is a charge that can only be done concerning God, right? He was talking to a Jewish audience when he said that. When he said the Holy Spirit is there and you can blaspheme him, that meant business. Paul writes that the Holy Spirit is omniscient, all-knowing, like the nature of God. 1 Corinthians 2.10 It was to us that God revealed these things by His Spirit, for His Spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. No one can know a person's thoughts except that that person's own spirit. And no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. Pretty cool verse, that. The spirit is an agent clearly involved as we come to salvation. And reception of the spirit is often a way in scripture which is described, uh, that describes the process of coming to salvation. I'm going to throw a few Bible verses your way. Um, I'm going to read them out a lot. Make note of these. Read them in your own time through the week. This will fill your devotional week. Trust me. Here we go. Let me throw a few interesting verses your way about this reception of the Spirit idea. John chapter 20. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side, and they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. 
Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Right, the disciples here have encountered the resurrected Jesus on Easter Sunday. This is Resurrection Sunday that has been spoken of here, that John states that time, that evening. This is 48 days removed or before Pentecost. It's here that Jesus breathes on them to receive the Holy Spirit. It's here that they are commissioned for service. It's here that they are set apart. This is said to echo Old Testament passages like Genesis 2-7, where God breathes life in Adam. Or in Ezekiel 37, where the wind of God breathes into an army of dry bones. This is... For all intents and purposes, the disciples getting converted. They're passing from death to life, from law to grace at this moment. Until the resurrection where death was defeated, sacrifice for atonement and all those things still stood. The resurrection was a major part of the apostles' gospel message for that reason. It's here that they received the Spirit. It's here where they come into that era of grace themselves. Romans 8 Now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus and because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the body we sinners have. And in that body... God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. And he did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied in us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the spirit. Those who are dominated by the spiritual nature, sinful nature, think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws and never will. That's why those who are under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the the spirit if you have the spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. This is purely to do with salvation. Soteriology, they call it in in theological talk. It's a theological, it's understanding that this is the work, the saving work of the Holy Spirit. John has that idea of that type of spirit presence in his gospel account. He goes on to say this in John 14. If you love me, obey my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you, who will never leave you. He was the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. Look at this last line here. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But, how's this line? You will know him because he lives with you now. I.e., hello, Jesus. And later will be in you. The Holy Spirit, Jesus, one and the same in the Godhead here. All of these verses 
speak of the work that the Holy Spirit does in the life of every believer. Your faith in Christ means the Holy Spirit is near and within. You've passed from death to life. You've passed from law to grace. And now you live a whole new life governed by the Holy Spirit. In John's Gospel, he is called the Advocate, the one who comes alongside. Under the governance and the companionship and the indwelling of the Advocate, you are constantly reminded of all that Jesus taught and you are shown the way that you should go. And if we go just a bit further into Galatians 5, this sort of Holy Spirit governance and interaction by its very nature will bear spiritual fruit and this will be proven by behavior. The fruit of the Spirit, rattle them off for me. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Self-control, two more. Faithfulness, gentleness, excellent. You don't need to be speaking in tongues to prove the Holy Spirit is in you. Your behavior will say more about that than a charismatic gift will. If you speak in tongues and prophesy but would rather hate than love or have no patience or kindness, there's plenty of scripture there to tell us that something is not right with that. And you cannot separate the Holy Spirit from your salvation. If you're doing all you can to shun Him completely, I don't want anything to do with the Holy Spirit at all. You actually might not be saved. You actually can't be without the Spirit drawing us to the God, to the Father. Jesus said He is not going to abandon us like orphans, and He instead would send the Spirit. If you would prefer absenteeism with your faith, then Christianity might be, not be our thing. It's at this point, whether we are continualists or cessationists, that we would actually be in pretty much agreement. It's when we jump into Acts that we start to part ways. Everyone is totally fine with Paul's and John's description of the Holy Spirit. The bit about the salvation elements of the Spirit. It's the stuff of Luke's work that emphasizes the prophetic and the charismatic that causes some feet to shuffle. I will say at the start that the Jewish messianic expectation was actually a prophetic side. They expected a prophetic ministry in the Messiah and an era of prophecy coming to life again. For the record, nobody denies the amazing things written in the 28 chapters of Acts. The promise of the Holy Spirit, the Pentecost outpouring, the tongues, the prophecy, the miracles, the healing. But a question remains. Can those things and should those things be taking place today too? It's 
cessationists say no. They teach that this is strictly something reserved for the apostles and their appointed agents, citing that in Acts, outside of Philip and Stephen, it's pretty much the apostles operating in these gifts and only a few of them were documented as doing so. If you scan through Acts, I can kind of see their point. When it comes to the really big things of healing and stuff like that, it's the Acts of the Apostles and it's titled that way for a reason in, the, uh, in, the, in, that, um, in that book. The last kids takeover service that we had, we had a play, you remember that? And we had someone fall off the edge and die. <laughs> and in that, it was Paul's character who actually was able to run down the stairs and raise that guy from the dead, right? A cessationist believes that he was the only person in that whole room in Troas authorised to do that. Therefore, it had to be him, otherwise that guy was going to remain that way. There's a prominent belief among cessationists that the gifts were actually there for the sake of witness to the Jews. With the outside languages to glorify God being a tool to alert the Jewish people. And the main line of cessationist thought is that once the apostolic ministry of the first century died off, and once the New Testament scriptures had been penned, there was actually no further need for charismatic gifts. And the reason they say that is that there is no longer apostolic or prophetic ministry operating in the church. Some of the reformers believe this. Luther and Calvin. Luther had a beautiful idea of the external voice of God referring to the scriptures. Some high profile modern preachers believe this. John MacArthur being one of them. Some of their inspiration, Ephesians 2, in particular verse 20. It says this, We are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. Out of that understanding, out the way they exegete that, that verse, is that they conclude that the foundations for church and Christianity have already been built, that the revelation is now complete. 1 Corinthians 13 is often referred to. The bit about in verse 8 about prophecy and tongues becoming useless. Hebrews 2.4 speaks about signs and wonders and those who heard him speak performing them. This is seen as a verse which indicates that the apostles are therefore the only ones to be doing these things. There's a number of Old, uh, New Testament verses which are used to, to build their case and to, to show case studies as to why they believe that the, spirits, uh, the spiritual gifts, the charismatic gifts should cease. And they make a very compelling case when they present them. And, uh, and I'm actually going to give them some ground even as I talk about the, um, you know, the conclusion at the end. So can the gifts, should the gifts, be taking place today? A cessationist says no. A continualist says yes. And I'm going to put my cards on the table here. I'm a continualist. 
I am one. And so this will come out a bit of conviction as I speak this out. And uh, I'm in the interest of transparency. That's where I'm coming from. But I see merit in some cessationist viewpoints. Let's talk this out a bit. In Luke 10, and Luke 9, Luke 10 we read that Jesus has in fact actually authorised 72 people, right? To go and preach and minister. And he authorised them all to go heal the sick. That's more than 12 apostles. We don't even know who those 72 pretty much numbered up as. There are those outside the gang in Luke 9 who are casting out demons in the name of Jesus. Remember that? We saw someone casting out demons in your name and we shut him down. We kicked over his table and said, not you, that's our job. And Jesus goes, don't stop them. That's not an exclusive gift then, is it? Quick question, how many people were in the upper room at Pentecost? 120. What's the percentage of them all speaking in tongues? I gave it away. All. <laughs> 108 people uncounted for there. Why would there be a need for the household of Cornelius to speak in tongues and prophesy if there was a Jewish-only requirement? or if it was supposed to stop. Or the unnamed disciples in Ephesus for that matter too, speaking in tongues and prophesying. In answer to the 1 Corinthians 13 reference, it does say that tongues and prophecy will in fact cease. And rightly so. Because these things are partial temporary things. The cessationists have understood the temporary nature of that right. And it says that this will occur when full understanding or completeness comes. A cessationist believes that the New Testament is that completeness. And I respect where they're coming from with that. But I personally believe of the continuous argument that the unveiled and fully clear presence of the kingdom of God is that destination of completeness. I don't think we have the completeness of God's kingdom here yet. The kingdom of God is here, but not yet as well, right? Now and not yet kingdom of God. Completeness, in my, as <laughs> for everything I can see, has not fully come. In answer to Ephesians, I look further into 4.11 where it says apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers and pastors are gifts to the church to build up and edify. I agree with the cessationists that there's never going to be anything like those 12 apostles again. For good reason. They were eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry, death and resurrection. All right, Even Paul was a minute, a eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. I fully get that. Those guys were on a whole other plane I do agree with the cessationists that no further scripture is going to emerge. I don't believe we're going to find some dim, dark manuscript from the first century of a credible apostle at this time. And I definitely do not believe that some modern preacher is going to come up and write a whole new letter that's going to become a canon of scripture. 
But I don't believe the apostolic ministry gift or the prophetic gift have ceased. I still believe that there is building up that the ministry of an apostolic or prophetic leader can do in today's church. I don't believe we've gotten to some transcendent level where we can consider ourselves completely edified. And I see scriptural exhortation for the gifts to continue. And 1 Corinthians is a pretty good idea of this. I love this because Paul is best known for explaining the saving work of the Spirit. Whereas Luke comes from the prophetic work of the Spirit. Paul talks in Galatians about reception of the Spirit throughout his letter and that's referring to those who got saved. But then he puts these gems together. This is a church that's quite immature and messing around with the gifts. But it's worth looking through this a bit. 1 Corinthians 12. Now, dear brothers and sisters, regarding your question, your question about special abilities the Spirit gives us. They wrote a letter. He's responding. I don't want you to misunderstand this. You know that when you were still pagans, you were led astray and swept along in worshipping speechless idols. So I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God will curse Jesus. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That's pretty cool. You can't say Jesus is Lord unless the Spirit got involved. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same God who does the work in all of us. A spiritual gift is given to each of us so that we can help each other. To one person, the Spirit gives the ability to give wise advice. To another, the same Spirit gives the message of special knowledge. The same Spirit gives great faith to another and to someone else, the one Spirit gives the gift of healing. He gives one person the power to perform miracles, the other the ability to prophesy. He gives someone else the ability to, to discern whether a message is from the Spirit of God or another spirit. Still another person is given the ability to speak in unknown languages, while another is given the ability to interpret what is being said. It is the one and only Spirit who distributes these gifts, and He alone decides which gift each person should have. That's the sovereignty of the Spirit there. goes on to say this in verse 29. Are we all apostles? Are we all prophets? Are we all teachers? Do we all have the power to do miracles? Do we all have the gift of healing? Do we all have the ability to speak in unknown languages? Do we all have the ability to interpret unknown languages? Of course not. So you should, look at this, earnestly desire the most helpful gifts. Now, Paul wrote this while the book of Acts was still being documented. It's his fourth letter. And he's not saying, hang on, those gifts are kind of my thing. He's going, you desire them, you chase it. You seek the Spirit on this. I don't have the monopoly on it. God is sovereign in how he gives these out. And finally, after expounding on the excellent way of love in chapter 13, he then makes a statement in 14 verse 1. Let love be your highest goal. But you should also desire the special abilities the Spirit gives, especially the ability to prophesy. In all honesty, tongues, if it continues today, 
is really for personal benefit unless it is used correctly in a church setting. I actually agree with the cessationists that the way tongues is done today in some churches, you know how you get that collective explosion of tongues in some churches? I'm not sure that's quite the plan that is supposed to be in place here. And I think Paul is actually correcting that in 1 Corinthians here. No interpretation of that means an uncomfortable experience for the uninitiated in their midst. And Paul explains that. But prophecy in an intelligible language speaks into the very deepest things because the Holy Spirit knows those deep things and will reveal those in appropriate ways to enrich both believers and non-believers alike. So a continualist sees permission in this passage, not restriction. There's no hint here that the gifts are going to disappear in a few years when Paul is gone. There is instead an encouragement to eagerly look for the gifts and use them correctly and in a way that edifies and works for the common good. But also the Corinthians are being reminded to not consider yourself more superior if you have a gift someone else wants but doesn't have. The same Holy Spirit is in all the gifts. And the same Holy Spirit is sovereign in how He gives them out. Human achievement has nothing to do with it. Perceived levels of church leadership has nothing to do with it. In Corinth, where the whole thing is talking about you know, being former pagans and idol worshippers, we see that this is more than a gift to convince or edify the early Jews as well. But also, you're no less of a believer if a gift is not obvious. The highest expression of Christianity has and always will be the most eternal thing, love. The most helpful of the spiritual gifts is prophecy. And Corinth is being warned here that none of the gifts are to be used as a plaything to enhance your personal status. This is something the Corinthian church was known to do. Instead, they were to be used to build up and encourage. All right. I'm going to wrap it up. I'm going to hear from you and hopefully from Facebook. Could or should the charismatic gifts of Acts and the New Testament church be active in the church today? A continualist, a, continuation, a cessationist says no, there's no need. A, cess- a continualist says yes and bring it on. And a Baptist congregation today has complete freedom to engage with the topic and make its own mind up. There are those in Baptist churches which believe that modern tongues are demonic. 20 years ago I heard that stated. I actually believe that's a dangerous mindset. If it is the spirit of work, we're going down a very dark hole there. I've encountered other Baptists who have been led to believe that it's there, it's really only for the pastor. I've had people state that to me. I've seen other people at the other end of the spectrum where they've gone through some sort of revivalist type thing. Everyone swung from the chandeliers for a season and there are Baptist churches who have had that, those, those times as well. And I've actually come in at the tail end of that and found everyone sort of hiding in their corners going, what just happened? 
couple of extremes that we sort of come from there. But then there's others who have found their groove in all this. They've navigated the theology, they've weighed up and discerned their experience and they've formed convictions about the way they engage with the Holy Spirit. If I were to be honest about us, I see a fair bit of confidence, but I think we're still getting there. And uh, maybe discussions like today might just help. Let's give a few minutes and just see where you guys are at before we wind up this service today.